Welcome to the podcast, Whiskey and a Map. Stories of adventure and expeditions as told by those who live them. I'm your host, Michael Reinhardt. It has been said that many adventures and expeditions start simply with a map and a glass of whiskey. A desire to go and see the world's wild places. You're invited to pull up a chair, pour yourself a glass of your favorite whiskey, and join us as we hear stories from another one of our friends just returned from the field. Welcome back to another episode of Whiskey and a Map. Today we have with us Dr. John Turk. John is a scientist, author, and National Geographic award-winning explorer. He earned a PhD in organic chemistry. John has written many books about his adventures, as well as numerous scientific texts. His accomplishments include kayaking around Cape Horn, across the North Pacific from Japan to Alaska, and around Ellesmere Island. Other accomplishments include first ski descents and first rock climbing ascents around the globe. John's worldview was altered by extended visits with Mulanat, a Siberian shaman. Over the next several episodes, we'll talk with John about high adventure, life and death, and the power of Aboriginal people, a power all of us possess. John, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, here we are. It's great to be on Whiskey and a Map, Mike. It's great to be chatting with you. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this uh, conversation for quite some time. You are a world-renowned explorer. National Geographic Explorer of the Year, but you started out actually in academia with a PhD in organic chemistry. How did you make the jump from scientist to explorer? Well, from my very earliest memory and even prior memory, I mean, my mother tells me that when I first started to walk, I would run away from home regularly and run down the block. We lived in Brooklyn, New York, but there were vacant lots at the time. I'd run down the the street and run around in these vacant lots with the grass over my head. I don't remember it, but there was something in me that liked, enjoyed, craved that journey through the grass where I didn't know where I was. So, but I had a very strong academic family and very strong pull socially that I should become a chemist or some kind of professional. So I, I, I followed that along and followed and followed. And then I had this deja vu moment. It was springtime. We were in the Rockies uh, outside of Boulder, Colorado. The snow was melting. The spring flowers were coming up in this meadow. And my dog started digging holes in the earth and shoving his nose in the earth and just shoving his nose in the earth and just going wild, digging and shoving. I go, what's my dog doing? So I shoved my nose in the earth and my face was ringed with this moist earth and I could smell springtime. I could smell everything coming to life. And something exploded inside me and said, I can't spend my whole life in a laboratory and uh, I got to get out of here and and go to where I need to be. Funny that you mentioned that story. One of my mom's, a few stories I remember from when I was a kid 
we lived out in a place called Thousand Oaks, which at the time was cattle ranches and a couple of homes. And she would always tell stories that she would see me walk out the back door. I'd be gone for hours just out in the fields and everything. <laughs> and she said, I'd always come back and I would always have some kind of treasure. It may be some like old hat or, you know, just something I found. Uh, yeah. Back in those days, they allowed us to be free range kids. I think. Some of us that urge to follow, I mean, it's following your inner urge. We have society telling us what to do, and we have this inner genetic urge, and everybody has a different urge. Some people, it's playing music. Some people, it's dancing. Some people, like you and me, it's wilderness. And I just had to follow it. There was no going back. One of the traditions that we have here at Whiskey and a Map is uh, two questions. One, a good drinking story. And two, what is the strangest thing that you've ever experienced or witnessed out there? I believe you have a story that covers both at the same time. Well, yeah. It had to be do with my journey with Mulanat, the uh, old shaman in Siberia. And uh, there's a long buildup to this story. But uh, she, I had been paddling a kayak. I met her. She told me to come back. I was injured on the tundra. And now she healed my injury in a mysterious way. So I went home. I was better. And it was a serious injury. I had an old avalanche injury, blah, 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 surgically repaired. And then it started haunting me. What happened? The chemist in me, the scientist in me said, look, I was standing in front of her on one leg naked. She spit on my pubic hairs. She told me she was going to the other world to see Kutcha the raven. And Kutcha would ask the old woman who lived on top of the highest mountain to heal me. And all of a sudden I was better. The day before I wasn't walking, the next day I skied a massive kuwar, um, Spring cool our bump, jumped off the corners, hit it hard, icy, <laughs> moved out around the corner into the snow. I was skiing. So what happened? So a year later, I came back and I brought her some presents, <laughs> you know, warm socks, warm gloves, jacket, things as much as I could carry. You had to walk into the village. You, there was no public transportation to the village. And so she looked at all the gifts and she squirreled them away and put them aside and said, well, thank you for the gifts, but you're thanking the wrong person. And I said, oh, who am I supposed to thank? And she said, you're supposed to thank Kucha the raven. Oh, boy, man. I was a chemist. I grew up in suburban Connecticut. I went to high school with George W. Bush. I had no experience on how to thank the raven. And she said, well, I figured that. And we're going to eat the Amanita and take a journey into the other world. And there you will meet Kutcha and you will be able to thank him. So that's I think that's a journey you were alluding to there, Mike. Yes. We're going to get, <clears throat> what did you experience on that, uh, 
that journey to the other side. That okay. spiritual journey. <laughs> so I'm sitting in a in an easy chair. I ate the Amanita. I go into a hallucinogenic dream state. So I'm sitting in a chair. I've eaten the Amanita, which is a hallucinogenic mushroom. And I'd like to say, don't do this experiment by yourself. The Amanita in North America is a deadly poison. I had the grandmother to help me. So this is not recommended uh, take home procedure. But anyway, I ate the Amanita. I'm in a hallucinogenic dream state. And I am determined to go to the other world and see Kutha, the raven, the raven messenger, and thank Kutha for healing me. And I'm trudging down through this, what turns into a labyrinth, and I'm moving through the labyrinth, and there's many um, passageways, many different passageways. I go left, and then I go right. I go around corners, and I'm trudging along for what seemed like an eternity. And then I see in the distance this circle of light, and that's the other world. And I'm walking towards it. Now the labyrinth is straight, and I'm walking towards it determinedly um, with great anticipation. I'm going to go to the other world, <laughs> and I have no idea what's going to be there. And then I get closer and closer and closer, and the circle is bigger. And then all of a sudden, I am terrified beyond any terrifyingness you can ever imagine. It's like, I don't know when I get to the other world whether I can come back. Is this a one-way journey and I'm not ready for this journey? And this immense fear overtakes me and I turn around and I start running back towards the real world. And I come to a, a junction in the labyrinth and i think oh my gosh i didn't trail a string i don't remember how to get back and now i'm running through the labyrinth bouncing off the wall in this terror and then bing click the world opens up and i'm sitting back in this chair and uh, lydia uh, mulanot had gone had left and Lydia Moulinot's protege was there, and she said, you're white, you're cold, you're cold as death, come back to the real world. And she starts massaging my hands and holding me and bringing me back to the real world. That's not the end of the story. So the next day, now I'm feeling this sense of failure. I went halfway around the world. The grand, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. The old shaman is showing me the journey to the other world. And I chickened out and my that op, that door is closed and I'm never getting there and I feel this huge sense of failure. And the next morning at breakfast Olek the hunter comes in and I don't know what to say. And he just says, get your things. We're going hunting. We're going out into the tundra. And it's November and it's cold. 
and we go out fishing and hunting and it was a successful three days and nobody mentions my failure. Nobody talks about the other world. We're in this world. And now we're coming back down the river in his speedboat. And now it's really getting seriously cold. This is Siberia. This is mid-November. This is winter. And the river is starting to freeze up. And the, uh, the speedboat is aluminum, and he's gunning it through the ice. And you hear the crinkling of the ice through the aluminum. And we get within sight of the village. And he kills the engine, and we're drifting, and crinkle, crinkle, crinkle. We're spinning in the current against the ice. And he says, John... Do you know why you failed to make the journey to the other world? And this is the first time anybody has mentioned this, like anybody knows or remembers that this great thing had happened to me. I said, oh, Lech, no, I just know that I was afraid. And he said, I understand. I am like you. You are like me. We are not journeyers in the other world. We are hunters. And let me tell you one thing. Kutcha will accept your thanks, but you have to make the journey in this world. And I said, what does that mean? <laughs> he says, go out across the tundra next year, next spring, in the spring. You will be cold. You will be hungry. You will be frostbitten. And then you will get to see Kutcha and you can thank him. <laughs> now we're going to uh, spend some time, more time, <clears throat> later on in the podcast for the years you spent um, with Bulinat, Olek, and in that village. But I want to take you back to the beginning. Your first big adventure would you say that was your paddling trip at Cape Horn? I would say that was my paddling trip to Cape Horn. Now, I understand you did it solo, but the only reason why you did it solo is because no one would go with you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> why Cape Horn? And, and what, was the, uh, what was the plan? I can't answer why Cape Horn. I can say this is that anybody who has an imagination, anybody who has a bottle of whiskey and a map knows that there are trips spinning around the universe all the time. And I was in the 1890s bar in Laconner, Washington, with a bunch of drunk hippies. And uh, fishermen, they were all fishermen, not hippies, fishermen. <laughs> and one, one of the fishermen said, just out of the blue, he said, you know, there's an old legend among seafarers that if you go around Cape Horn under sail, you can toast the queen with your feet on the table. And it was just a drunken story. Ha, ha, ha. And it hit me. I said. Well, I'm going to do that, man. <laughs> I'm going to grab that journey out of the air and make it my journey. But I don't have enough money for a sailboat, so I'll try a kayak. And at that time, I had zero experience as a long distance expedition person. It was a really dumb idea. 
And everybody told me it was a really dumb idea. John, you're going to go. That's really dumb. You have to build up to that. You don't just start with going around Cape Horn in a kayak. And I said, well, whatever, I'm going. And nobody would go with me. So I went alone. Of course, Cape Horn is known to be probably the most dangerous seas on the planet. Yeah, it's a graveyard of ships, um, massive waves. Uh, there's no land all the way around the earth. So the waves go around and around and around and the waves build and build and build. And uh, the Drake Passage in Cape Horn is uh, probably the most dangerous piece of ocean in the world. And to navigate that, to travel in that, in a 60-pound boat, a 16-pound boat that you can pick up with one hand seemed to me a great adventure. And I must admit that that time I failed. I crash-landed before Cape Horn and uh, dislocated my shoulder and ended up swimming in the Antarctic Ocean with one arm, with one dislocated shoulder. So um, all the Sunday morning quarterbacks were right. I wasn't prepared for that, and I did fail. When you went down there, you came in contact with the indigenous people there. I believe they're called the Yagun? Yeah, the Yagun. The Yagun. And you saw that they were paddling between the islands down there. Right. I read this book by Joshua Slocum, a he was the first person to sail single-handedly around the world. He didn't, he didn't do it nonstop. He made several stops, but he, he did sail around the world. And he noticed when he was in the Straits of Magellan, that there were the Yagan people in their opened bark canoes with little fires in their canoes, uh, cooking shellfish. And that was my first introduction to the power that the Aboriginal people had. So the, the British seamen in their British, Spanish, French, Portuguese seamen in their best ships of the 18th century were crash landing and dying out there. And the Yagan people were in open canoes living out there, calmly eating their breakfast. And I thought, wow, there's really something to learn. I'm going to learn that in my kayak. You made your way through that that area. The fateful mistake, though, was they said a storm was coming, but you decided that that was not going to stop you. The fact that I crash landed? Well, the storm that came in and you decided to put out and go out to sea anyways. Oh, yeah. And that was really dumb. That was really dumb. I had this theory that you move as much as you can every day, even in inclement weather. And that was really dumb. That was my inexperience. And that almost cost me my life. You don't get to make those kinds of mistakes often. Um, So I had this theory that the storm is coming up, but I'll pick up another couple of miles. I'll be that much closer. And um, then the storm came real suddenly and was real violent. And 
on shore and I just uh, couldn't handle it and crash landed. Dislocated your shoulder, your kayaks in shatters, you make your way to shore, but you still had a ways to go on foot, did you not? To get back yeah, to civilization? Yeah, it was several days. I, um, I, I reset my shoulder myself. I reduced my shoulder injury. And then I ran out into the surf to get what I could, some food and uh, some gear and whatever I could. And there was a, a Chilean naval base up the coast. So I had to walk up the coast. I had no backpack. I was dragging everything in an old, um, in a, a watertight water bag. Uh, there were a bunch of rivers to cross. Yeah, I had to take off all my clothes. It was cold and swim across and make my way to the Chilean base. And it was pretty harsh, and, and I was certainly cold and shivering and hungry and all of those things. But during that journey, I don't remember exactly, maybe five or six days of walking, I realized the depth of wonder, the depth of joy, and the depth of learning that nature had there for, for me, that nature isn't always friendly nature will rain on your parade i was learning that nature was raining on my parade but she was there as my friend she wasn't my enemy she was there as my teacher and in that time i remember standing on a rock lean with hunger my stomach felt empty shivering with cold and I felt the wind actually, it wasn't actually doing this, but I experienced the wind blowing through my skeleton and cleaning me out. And I felt this great cathartic cleansing. And during that experience, I realized that this was now my life is to experience nature in all of her beauty and all of her rawness, the snowstorms, the avalanches, the storms, and that cleansing, that taking the stories out of your head, wiping yourself clean. And um, I ended up with that when I got to the Chilean Naval Base with two real strong feelings. One is, I don't want to be stupid again. And two is I wanted to keep coming out here into these wild places. One of the next big adventures was the Gobi Desert and a mountain biking trip. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. I had this wonderful wife, Chris. She was um, a really, really a wonderful, joyous person. And she shared my just love of being in wild places. Again, whiskey and a map. There you go. Spread out a map and look at where there are wild places, where there are um, places with few roads, few civilizations. And we picked Central Asia. Central Asia is a very mysterious place and Mongolia. So that, and this was before mountain biking was a big deal. We got some sort of mountain bikes, no front shocks, certainly no rear shocks. 
and um, decided to do a journey with no particular agenda other than to just go around Mongolia. There was no thing like epic spot like Cape Horn. And we we wandered down. We were drawn to the Gobi and started wandering across these trackless, roadless or half roadless places across the Gobi just for the joy of being out there. We never wrote it up. We, we never put it to published it. If we were with you on that trip and one of the stops that you made and we were looking around, what would the scenery look like? Well, we were in a variety of environments. We went down to the the Gobi, and the Gobi is this series of big basins. We did not cross the Gobi Desert from north to south or anything. We were piddling along the edges. A lot of it was very much like the basin and range area of the American West of uh, Utah, Nevada, and so on. So it was basins that are deep, that there's no river outlets surrounded by mountains. So you go down and then you go up over the next range and then down. The interesting thing about that is that there was no water in the bottom. In um, many places in the world, you find your water low down. You go down to water flows downhill. But this, all the water in the basins just goes into the earth and disappears. And you had to look for these um, impermeable layers halfway up the mountains where the water would collect and form springs. And it was really a geology journey to uh, see what geological layering would hold the water. And we would go down and we would go up and over and and then we got to the Western mountains um, and everything started to be greener and there was, there was more vegetation and so on and traveled around till we were in a tamarack forest. It was a, a lot of different ecosystems. What were the people like? <laughs> they were nomads. The people were nomads. They had... Their flocks of uh, goats and horses, lots of horses, camels, sheep that they herded and they moved them with the seasons in a, a prescribed pattern. Um, they were very generous in the old in the old way. The rule in Mongolia at that time was that the person who is already camped is in some state of security. The person who is traveling is more vulnerable. So the person who is camped must feed the person who is traveling. And we saw this in both directions. At one point in our journey, I mean, at many, many points in the journey, people would come running out and see us and welcome us into their yurts and feed us. There were so many times when there wasn't much food anywhere. And we would be in the yurt 
and I would see how much food was being prepared, and I would count how many people and the children, and the guests got served first, the children second, and then the parents last. And I would look at the amount of food and go, I better not eat too much because if I eat too much, the children won't get any food. And there was that level of generosity. It went the other day, the other way. <laughs> One time we were down, we ran out of food. We couldn't find any food. We had one package of ramen noodles for the three of us, me and Chris and our guide, Aaron Bolt. And that's 250 calories uh, divided by three ways. That's 80 calories after you've been riding your bike hard all day over the mountains. It's essentially nothing. And two guys come walking down the road, their truck broke down, and they've got a long walk to somewhere, and they have no food at all. So we invite them in, and now we have one package of ramen noodles divided by five ways. And everybody eats and rubs their tummy and says thank you and thanks the Lord for the food, and then we go on our way. Sounds like a fun trip. Yeah. Yeah, and to experience that with Chris for how long? For that whole time, how long did that trip take? In Mongolia, yeah, yeah, I don't remember exactly. It was uh, two or three months, and then we got into this little this town, and there was a cholera epidemic, and they were um, quarantining the town. And at a certain time, like four o'clock that afternoon, nobody could leave the town for the foreseeable future for months and months. And we ran to the airport and managed to get the last three seats on the last flight out of town. But I think we were we were out there for the summer, I would say two and a half months, roughly. Now, the sea kept calling you back and you undertook this epic voyage kayak, well, sea trip from Japan to Alaska. In fact, you wrote a book called in the wake of the Joman, how did this trip come about? Well, again, the whiskey and the map kind of concept, a little image shows up. So uh, some time ago, some um, hikers or something, some people found, uh, stumbled on, on an old skeleton uh, near Kinawak, Washington, along the Columbia River. And it turned out two things about the skeleton. One, it was, it was 9,000 years old. And the other was that the, the bone structure of the face was not similar to that of the modern American Indians. It was a different bone structure. And after a bit of a research, the anthropologists at the time determined that this person, this skeleton, was a Joman from northern Japan. And this upended the anthropology of the time and indicated that there was a migration to North America that was different than the migration that brought the modern American Indians here and a different people settled here before or during or coincidental with the people that are here now. And the Jomen were a seafaring people. 
And now we get back to this Aboriginal power. I went to Cape Horn because I saw the Yagan people hanging out in open canoes, cooking their oysters. And I figured if the Joman people could do a journey in some sort of a primitive boat from northern Japan to Alaska, I could do it in a modern kayak. And by this time, I was a lot more experienced. And I set out to follow that journey. I would like to add that since then, modern DNA analysis has disproven that idea that the Joman made the migration and the Kinnewick man was a different origin. But at the time, that was the prevailing theory, and I decided to follow that. Originally, your plan was to take one year to accomplish this. Right. How many miles are we talking about? Okay. We're talking about 3,000 miles, and we're talking about Northern Siberia, Arctic Ocean, North Bering Sea. If it's not the most tempestuous ocean in the world, we've already said that Cape Horn is the most tempestuous, so we can't say that twice. I'll put it as number two. <laughs> and I'm going to ask you about the Kuril uh, Islands in that passage, because the way you describe the sea is it's a devilish sea. But before we get there, the boat that you took on the first leg... Right. Um, I never heard of it before. What was it? Okay. Okay. It's 3,000 miles from Hokkaido to Nome. Um, there's no way I, maybe somebody else, could paddle that in the ice-free time allowed. So we needed sail. And we originally thought about a Hobie cat, which are really fast but they tend to tip over and they're very heavy. They're more of a sporty thing for a sporty situation than an expedition thing. So we settled on these things called wind riders. So the central, it's a trimaran. The central hull is very similar to a sea kayak, about 16 feet long with a cockpit, just, just like a sea kayak. And then it's got two pontoons, amas, one on each side to give it trimaran stability and a sail. And these things are very fast. And we thought um, three months, a thousand miles a month, 30 miles a day uh, with the wind in our favor should not be an impossible thing. So we set out from Japan with the uh, idea that we'd make 30 miles a day and um, and three months later, we'd be in Alaska. Uh, it didn't work out. So nature had a different idea. Nature had a different idea once again. Now, the first set of islands, is called is it called the Curls? The Curl Islands, yeah. The Curl Islands. And the way you described the, the dangerous seas with whirlpools and shears and standing waves... Uh, you describe it as if Cape Horn is number one, the Kuril area, those seas have to be the second most dangerous oceans. And, and that's not in your opinion, but probably in most mariners. Describe those sea conditions that you encountered. Okay, so we're sailing between two islands. 
a relatively short distance of 15 miles, something we should be able to do easily in the day. And we set out calm winds, blue sky, rolling sea, everything's mellow. We're sailing along, and all of a sudden, there are these massive breaking waves out in the middle of a otherwise relatively calm ocean. How big are these waves? I'm not going to put a number on it, but I will tell you that I saw Franz, my partner, Franz Helfenstein, surfing down one of these waves. And as I said, the, the boats are 16 feet and he's surfing, flying down this wave and his boat is small and he's on the face of that wave for a long time. And then the wave catches me and I'm surfing down this thing and I am going so fast. I'm thinking, when I get to the bottom, I'm going to dig my bow in and I'm going to flip. And so I'm making cuts like a surfer would make and trying to hit the bottom of the trough and so on. And we're fighting for our lives out here. I can see him. He can see me. We're not in the driver's seat. And then finally, for no reason, nothing that we did on our own, the sea flattens out again and we're in calm water. And now we say, oh, boy, that was scary. Let's uh, continue on our journey. So we plot our course to this island. Uh, let's say it was northeast. Let's say it was 45 degrees. So we plot our course 45 degrees and start sailing. And Franz picks up his GPS and he says, we're going 270 at four knots. I said, no your GPS is broken. Well, it turns out we were in a giant whirlpool out in the middle of the ocean. And we spun around and around that whirlpool all that day, all the rest of that day, all that night. And like being in a huge toilet bowl, 10 miles around, and there is no way we could break out. We're in this big eddy in, in deep water. And finally, we broke out the following morning. So we were in there for 24 or 30 hours. And we ended up back where we started from, <laughs> went back to our old camp and said, oh, boy, we have to rethink this. So what was going on is that the Curls are a volcanic island. There's a very deep trench to the east, very shallow continental shelf to the west. So you have, when the tides move, you have a wall of water five miles high hitting an undersea cliff and canyon and creates all kinds of chaos. So once we realized what was going on, that changed the nature of the trip. The journey was now survival, not 30 miles a day. To make a long story short, we didn't make it to Alaska that uh, fall. Now, you came back the next year and decided to use kayaks. Right. So why the change? The wind riders were very fast if the wind was in the right direction. But that was very rare. If there was calm, they didn't paddle very well. You could you can make 30 miles a day paddling a kayak. The best we could do paddling those things was six miles a day. They just 
you couldn't paddle them. And in a headwind, they were totally useless. So every once in a while, we get a 30-mile day. But um, most of the time, we'd get 30-mile weeks. And then they were very heavy, and we were in and out of the surf every day, and the surf landings and launchings were horrible, just really a struggle and dangerous. If those things flipped, they were just too cumbersome. And it's my theory in navigation after that experience that either you go really big to a yacht that can stand offshore and hang out in the heavy seas, or you go the smallest boat possible, which is the kayak, and you be nimble, you be ninja, you be the judo person, and you you let nature overpower you, but you sneak around the edges, and the kayak is that kind of boat. You and your partner at that time had a um, almost a um, gallows-type humor about uh, the situation, that you're going to get crunched, but you're not going to die. Oh, yeah. It's a failure, not a die. Um, If you made a mistake and things were going wrong, that was a failure. But dying is not an option. You can fail a lot, but dying you only get to do once. And then uh, it ends the ballgame. We also uh, had another gallows type humor. I used Crazy Horse's uh, battle cry at the Battle of the Bighorn, which is which is opposite to it's a failure, not a die. I would say it's a good day to die. And I would hold my paddle up like a um, lance, charge into the surf screaming, it's a good day to die. And Misha didn't like that. He went, no, 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 we can't do that. Um, I said, okay, well, what would you like the battle cry to be? When Misha was a student during the Soviet Union and they had drills because the Americans were going to drop nuclear bombs on the Soviet Union, they would all yell labor and defend and jump under their desks. And um, so he didn't like Crazy Horse's battle cry. It's a good day to die. So when we would drop into the surf, we would hold our paddles above our head and scream labor and defend and drop into the surf. There was one time when you were in the kayaks, I believe it was nighttime, you are getting just crushed by the waves. In fact, you're just barely hanging on. You were talking about the luminescence in the waves and how that kept you going. Mm -hmm. Do you recall that? Oh, very much. I recall that on my deathbed. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So now we're going back to the first year in the Windriders. We found that the border between the islands where you had this great change in depth was where the standing waves were, were, where the eddies and the whirlpools are. So the way to avoid that danger was to go inland and make a big arc around this subterranean canyon. And these currents would wrap around these small islands. So originally we thought, 
Well, the islands are really closely spaced, 10, 15, 18, 20 miles apart. We'll spend every night at land. We'll just go to an island. But we couldn't do that because of the nature of the currents and the nature of the uh, the standing waves and eddies and whirlpools. So we would have to go out to sea and spend many nights at sea in essentially a kayak. So they were trimorans. So they wouldn't tip over, but basically we were in a northern ocean, no sleeping bag, no tent, no nothing. We're just in our dry suits and we're out there for um, the longest was three nights, four days. And you get really cold just sitting in a kayak in a northern ocean for that amount of time. So one day. The third night, actually, we got in this horrific storm and we're now strung out. We're we're really cold. We're really, really thirsty and hungry and we haven't had a warm meal. And now we're in these breaking waves and every wave is stay totally alert because if you're not alert, you're going to tip over and die. This is your third night with no sleep. You're just hanging on by your toenails. And then as you see the waves start to break, it's, it's nighttime, it's black. You can feel the wave, but you can't really see it. And as it starts to break, as the foam starts forming, it explodes in luminescence of the luminescent algae that are there. And it's sparkling these waves are above your head and you look up and it's like a zillion stars on this breaking wave. This wave could kill you, you see, but it's all the beauty of the sparkles. And this is what I was talking about before. This is what nature does. Yes, it can rain on your parade. Yes, it's nasty. Yes, but in dragging you to the brink, in taking you to that edge of fatigue and the, as far as your body can go, it wakes you up with this cathartic beauty. And this is what keeps uh, me and anybody who loves nature going. Speaking of storms, and this is one that I believe led you to Mulinat, but you started out the day, I believe you indicated that in that area of the seas, the weather was fairly predictable. You had taken your barometer readings. It was going to be a clear day. And then a storm came up. Tell us about that. Right. Well, as you say, we were, we, this is Misha, my Russian partner and I, were paddling along the coast and we were in a hurry to get to Alaska. Um, we had X number of miles and X number of days before winter and 2000 miles. We did the first year, 1000, the second year, 2000. So there was a village of Vivenka along the coast, but it was early in the afternoon. And we talked about it and said, no, we better not stop in the village. We get another few hours of paddling. So we're going by the village and I'm feeling a little bit like, oh, it'd be nice to quit early and um, people will have food for us, fresh bread, and it'd be nice. But no, we better keep going. And like you just said, normally we kept track of 
kept track of the sky, lenticular clouds, indicators of a storm. You keep track of your bar barometer watch to make sure that uh, see when um, low pressures are coming in. There was no indication of a storm, nothing. And just as we reach this village, this horrendous storm comes ripping down out of nowhere. And it and the winds are blowing and the rain starts to fall and the wind picks the waves up and blows it into the rain and the wind picks the rain up and blows it into the waves. And all oh, it's this mayhem. You can't see where the sea ends and the air begins or the air ends and the sea begins. And I look at Misha and Misha looks at me and we said, we better go to town. We better get out off this ocean. And so we pull into the surf and the surf is just drop down surf is just and we come in and uh, getting out of the boat. Uh, I'm really old now, but I was even sort of old then. I was in my 50s and I'd been in the boat for eight or so hours and I'm getting out kind of slow and creaky and wet and damp. And this woman, Lydia, walks up the beach and she's a Koryak woman, a Aboriginal woman siberian and she speaks in english which was a curious thing and she said john misha welcome we were expecting you the grandmother created this storm to bring you to our village she wants to talk to you what's going through your head at this point What's going through my head? Well, um, I grew up in suburban Connecticut. I have a PhD in organic chemistry. I went to high school with George W. Bush. I'm not prepared for this statement. But the other, the other thing that's going through my head is that there's a storm out there. There's a warm house over there. I can smell bread baking in the oven. Um, I'm out here in a very vulnerable place. I am not in a position to be cynical, to be questioning, to be negative. I am here. My survival depends on being open to what's happening around me. And what's happening around me right now is a storm out to sea, great generosity and warmth and love right in front of me. I'm going for the generosity, warmth, and love. And what happens next? Well, <laughs> what happens is we go see the grandmother the next day. She's upriver at fish camp. She, the, the salmon are running. She's catching fish in a set net and filleting them and drying them for the winter. What happens is this white man, these two white men, a white American and a white Russian, come charging up to fish camp. She's busy. I don't care if she created the storm or not. I don't care if she summoned us or not. This is the time when you get your food in for the winter. She didn't have time to talk. So we had lunch together. And we talked a little bit. And I'm kind of at a loss. You know, I'm trying to be the journalist and ask these dumb questions. And uh, it's not going anywhere. Like, um, if I've been summoned, I want to know what's going on. And we're not getting anywhere. So 
we, we prepare to leave. It's all nice. We had lunch. We had some salmon and some bread. And, and then she grabs me by the elbow. And she puts her other, this woman is about four foot 11. I'm not exaggerating, but she has these penetrating eyes. She at that time was a hundred. No, she at that time, she was 96 years old. She's short. She's wrinkled. She has penetrating eyes. There's something about her that tells you no messing around. You just, there's a power there that you can feel that you don't feel every day. And she says, John, Misha, come back. It will be good if you do. And then she goes back to cleaning fish. And Misha and I go down river. The storm ends. We get in our boat. We start paddling on towards Alaska. And we stop for lunch out in the water. We raft up out in the water. We're having a little munchie. And I said, Misha, I said, you're the Russian. Um, does she really mean it that we should come back? Or is that like saying, see you later, bye? And he said, well, I'm a European like you are. Um, I'm not a Koryak. But whiskey and a map. <laughs> Here we go. A random statement, 11 words. Do you, this adventure is flying by you. Do you grab it? Or do you let it go? And if adventures fly by you and you let, let them go, they're gone. You never get them back. And if you grab them, sometimes you stumble, but you always end up on an adventure. And we decided we were going to come back. And what happened was I had been on this path, sponsored athlete, North Face, Patagonia, big kayak sponsors, uh, making a career as a sponsored athlete. And I took the next five years off of extreme adventuring to hang out in this village. So all of my sponsors dropped me like a hot potato. They do not want to hear that I'm going to Vivenka to eventually eat the Amanita and travel to the other world. This is not on the agenda. I lose all my sponsors. Five years but I changed my life in the most glorious way. And this was my journey, final deep journey into Aboriginal wisdom. Now, before we go there, the rest of the trip to Alaska, how'd that go? Yeah, it went well. <laughs> we got tired. We got hungry. We got strung out. Uh, we didn't get frostbitten because it was above freezing. We had adventures. We saw walrus. We saw people. We were hungry. We got in um, nasty oceans. Uh, when we got, we were going to go through the Diomedes to Nome. When we got there, um, the American customs people said that because there's no customs station, we'd have to give $10,000 to the customs people to set up a temporary station to cross in that way. And the Russians said if we tried to go that way, they would shoot us. So we decided um, we weren't going to go that way. And we ended up going to St. Lawrence Island, and uh, which is Alaska. And um, yeah, we completed the trip. Now, throughout your book that you wrote about that expedition, you keep asking and trying to answer the question as to why. Why would 
Stone Age people risk death to leave a place where they know how to hunt, they know how to fish, they have relatives, and travel over the horizon to places that they don't know. Yeah. And this is the wonder of the human psyche. This is the wonder of the spirit of adventure that I believe is deeply embedded in us. One of the examples I gave, which incidentally made the professional anthropologist howl. <laughs> we're, we're paddling along and we run into this migration of gray whales. And these are big animals, I forget. They're one of the larger whales on the planet. They're very gentle. Gray whales only feed in shallow water. They can't, they, they can't feed out to sea. And they go north from Sakhalin, from the southern part near Alaska, the southern part of uh, the Russian Far East. And all along the coast, up the Kurils and along Kamchatka, they go north in the fall, and they come back in the spring with their babies. And in the winter, all the ocean along the shore is frozen solid, and they need to breathe. So Aboriginal people were acute observers of nature. They see this, and they know somehow that by going north, these whales find an ice-free land to have their babies to feed and to come back south. Now, maybe they didn't know that the coast swung around to the south. Maybe they thought there was some magical tropical land in the north. I don't know what they thought. And I don't even know if this particular example is what motivated them. But I do know that people, and it was probably not the Jomen, but other seafaring people from Central Asia, follow that coastline on a sense of adventure. And this is part of the wonder of human beings. And I will get to talk to this later in the podcast, is that you would think that because survival is so hard, the people that survived would be the most practical, that spent all their time gathering food, building shelters, collecting firewood, all, the t all, all their time surviving. But the practical people don't exist. Yeah, there are some individuals that are practical, but as cultures, there are no, none, zero cultures in the world now or in the past that were totally practical. People are dreamers, and the power of human beings comes paradoxically from their dreaming, from their art, from their play. And so this was my first journey into embracing the, the spirit of wonder, the spirit of adventure, the spirit of curiosity, the spirit of art 
in human beings. And once we appreciate that, and once we build that into our bones and see that as who we are, we come out as a much stronger people. I would imagine that there was many a time that you were sitting in your kayak and you imagined yourself being one of those Stone Age mariners. Did that, did that occur? Yeah, I, I do that all the time, man. I, I do that almost every day because we're a tool-using species. We're a tool-owning species, and I own a I, – I cut uh, – have you ever tried – <laughs> I um somebody when I was in the Solomon Islands gave me a stone axe an old aboriginal stone axe I live in Montana in the forest and I heat my house with wood I went out with this stone axe and started whacking on a pine log you don't get very far I own a chainsaw I own two chainsaws <laughs> so yeah we're tool-using species. I'm a tool-using species. You're a tool-using individual. But that's not, that cuts my firewood. But that doesn't give me the power. And the power that I'm talking about is something that goes beyond that firewood. And since that day on the beach, when Mulanat, and when Lydia told me that Mulanat had created the storm, that was in 2000. That was 20 years ago, 22 years ago. The next 20 years, I've been interested in following and chronicling this deeper power that underlies it, goes beneath the tool using species that we are. Thank you for joining us. Return for part two, when John will tell us about his experiences with the Siberian shaman, Mulanat. In the meantime, please visit my website, michaeljreinhardt.com, and my new photography website, michaelreinhardtphotography.com, where I put together a collection of very special photographs. We'll see you all down the road.